0: Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 33 of the National National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. I'm Bobby Chesney. And I'm Steve Vladek, and it's the first day of school. It is the first day. Steve and I are fresh out of the... Out of the classroom, we both taught constitutional law just this morning. Con law, not at the same time. Unlike last spring, we are not co-teaching
1: this time. Well, no, at the same time, just not in the same room. Right, you're right. Not, but you you, you brought donuts. I brought donuts. You you didn't. I so you know Come I reserve on. I reserve my bribery for Closer later in the semester when I feel like they're going to understand it. Like I'm you know
0: when it's going to be clear to them what I'm hoping to get out of it and when I haven't created expectations. Uh, I and I'm always going to bring them. I may food. have sent a fuzzy signal. Um, just. Yeah, I will upgrade to breakfast tacos when <laughs> when the need is greater. So
1: you and I are teaching actually two of the three small groups within the same section. So our, right.
0: our, our students are going to compare notes and be like, hmm. The, the, my students will say, like, I don't feel good. I ate this terrible donut. And I didn't learn anything. And your students will say, like. I didn't well, learn just, anything, fe- but I feel good. We feasted on knowledge. <laughs>
1: yes, the Articles of Confederation apparently still suck.
0: Well, yeah, exactly. We just had, So I assume. Let's tell our listeners here what we're going to talk about, and then we'll talk about that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So um, actually, before we get to the first day of school, we did want to spend a minute talking about the the far more urgent issue in the news, especially in our part of the world, Hurricane Harvey and the continuing impact, both in and around Houston, and also you know just a really quick discussion of some of the, the broader legal issues that arise in natural disasters in general, even if they're not necessarily really front and center here. We do want to come back to con law. Um, and then we might do a, a sort of a quick run through what really has been a relatively quiet um, week on the national security
0: news front. You know, Steve, would you say this is the quietest national security legal, not yeah. national security, but national yeah. security legal news week we've had? Legal news, I think, yes. Yeah. I mean,
1: you know, I, I don't, I don't want to sort of minimize the impact of North Korea flying a missile yes. over Japan, but we'll talk about that, although yep. I'm not sure there's a lot of law there. Yeah, this will be more of a uh, quick hit on a bunch of things. This will be a shorter episode. Pardons, right? Yeah. President Trump pardoned everyone's favorite 85-year-old racist sheriff, Joe Arpaio. Uh, is it true that he's running against? Uh, he's oh, going to run against Jeff Flake. So, as someone who, as someone who clerked on the Ninth Circuit, where Joe Arpaio was a, <laughs> frequent, a frequent defendant, um, you know Joe Arpaio is a civil rights litigation jobs program. But so, mm. so leaving aside the policy piece of it, which is not our brief, we're going to talk a bit about some of the questions about pardons that are now front and center because yep. Trump has finally used this power. Good. Um, We're going to talk briefly about a, I think, somewhat surprising development in the most prominent CIA torture suit that's Yeah, I was caught off guard. I was really not expecting that. That it settled, right? That uh, the two defendants, Mitchell and Jessen, actually settled out of court. Um, We don't know a lot about the settlement, but we can talk, Bobby, a bit about the implications. Yep. And, of course, we have to talk about... Whatever that was, Sunday night, that <laughs> purported to be the season finale of Game of
0: Thrones. You sound un- unhappy with it. All right, so in the interest of sparing our listeners who are not wanting the spoilers, we won't say anything further about that. Other than my yet. disappointment. Other than Steve's disappointment. Winter has come for my Game of Thrones <laughs> enjoyment. <laughs> Speaking of things that might have been disappointing to the viewers, you and I both thought this morning. Um, but we Actually, hard- realize, let's talk about Hardy. Harvey first. Yeah, Let me just let me say... Uh, um, for people in the rest of the country or, the, or outside the United States who are maybe hearing about this story, we have people outside the U.S. who listen to our podcast. I think there's like this one wow. person. Maybe. Oh, I'm man. kidding. If you're if you're an out of uh, out of the country listener, cool. Uh, hit us up on on Twitter or or email us so we know who you are and give you a shout out. Seriously, and, and perhaps deliver some tailored content about wherever you are. Um, Mongolian national security law. You know, I'd imagine they've got some serious issues. So, <laughs> well, you know, they're just a tough in Russia neighborhood. And China, tough I mean. neighborhood. Uh, Harvey's—it's—it's it's an ongoing problem. It's—it is by no means over. The situation, in particular, with one of the dams right now, is absolutely terrifying. Um, there, I think at this point, there's 17 people dead. Um, it's just—it's going to be higher. The scale of the tragedy is—is is, I think very hard because I don't think TV does a great job of capturing this. You
1: can't. I mean, it's thirty. I mean, you know,
0: by some reports, up to thirty percent of Harris County is underwater. No, it's just absolutely insane. I have—I have family uh, that got out yesterday after one. Uh, attempt to get out where they got turned back, you know, mm-hmm. kids and dog in the car and sent back when they first tried to get out. Um, they're, they're safe in San Antonio now. Um, another part of the story that's not getting attention, like everyone's focused on Houston and understandably Um there are so many smaller communities yeah. that are not part of the Houston area, that but that are in that Closer part of the coast. State. like Rockport. Uh, yeah, oh, I mean, look, I my family in my entire life I've been vacationing in Port Aransas, and the, the damn thing came right through there, Rockport, and um, you know took took a terrible toll. Much further inland, places like Refugio. Um, are not getting the attention and and therefore not the support that they need. There are endless communities that are just devastated right now.
1: Now, I think part of the problem is, you know, as, we, as we're as we chatting, it's it's Wednesday morning, it's about 1045 Central Time. Part of the issue is that, you know, there's it's not a lack of support, right? There's been a ton of money flowing in. There's lots of supplies. It's just been really difficult to get stuff to the people in need right. and to right. get them out of harm's way.
0: And, and there's not much beyond nature's course that yeah. can fix this. The amount of water that's you know, still draining from the basins into right. that area. It's tremendous. And I, and I understand there may be more rain the forecast coming up of the weekend, which is horrifying. Now, far far now I'd be
1: remiss in not pointing out. So so there's sort of two different buckets of legal questions here, right? And, and I just want to flag them, because I, I actually don't think at the moment there are any really interesting legal debates to be had. But at least, at least putting them out there so folks, you know, have a sense of this. Yep. You know, there's the question of the federalism implications of emergency response, mm-hmm. right? And sort of who's in charge, who takes the mantle, just how powerful a role... FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, can and should play in this context. You know, my sense is that we have not, at least to date, seen a repeat
0: of the disaster that was FEMA's response to Katrina. Oh, yeah. Not, not, and, and not unrelatedly, we have not seen a disaster unfold in terms of the, the incredibly poor showing or right. inadequacy of state and local government that's right, that's right, that's right. institutions. That's right. You've got to give the state... The city, the county officials, the, the Texas National Guard, Texas military yeah. forces, all of them performing at and, a really high level. And I was saying, and, is, and I think FEMA's
1: doing, FEMA's doing what it can do. I'm, I'm not going to give a lot of credit to the, the, the president because, well. No,
0: and, and, and you know what? And, and that should, that's not the president's role. Uh, the president uh, has an important head of state role that's right. in a national tragedy like this. Right, which now, he may or that, may not be let's carrying Let's talk out. about that in a second because he, he came here, right to here Austin. to our town I know. yesterday. Um, I was so sad to miss his visit. Uh, I'm sure you were. I'm sure you were. I actually, I was worried it would be really disruptive here. It, however, they were moving him about. It was they managed to avoid the the central area, which I appreciate. Uh, let's talk real quick about the the importance. And this ties in with our common law theme today. In our system, the president is chief executive and or chief of state and and uh, chief of government. And and the head of state function in some systems is separated out, and you get like the. That's right, parliamentary system We have the
1: president versus the prime minister. Yeah,
0: and and in here. We've got it all combined. Um, I'll give him credit for this. Absolutely. The president came down. Now, people are tearing <laughs> into him about it. And, so and there's a lot of
1: time pointing out that he was here. I'm here, everybody. Look, I'm right. here. Well, I, I, I haven't talked to a single victim. I haven't actually yeah. met with anyone who was directly affected.
0: But I'm here. <laughs> so here's here's what I want to say. I think he's getting far Bit for me to defend. His, <laughs> his personal style is what it is. There was no way it was going to be sort of a you – know, he's not going to be – George Bush at the side of 9-11. He's not going to be, you know, one of those guys who's who's inspiring at the scene. I think actually it's a bit unfair to task him too much, as some people are, for not getting right up into the waters and into the zone. Actually, I think if he'd done that, the security and other, the the imposition on where people need to be focused of having the president uh, show up that close. I think it's good that he kind of kept his distance. I wish that he had some, at least somebody had written a speech for him that he would just deliver that That would would sound better. Talking about the size of the crowd was not helpful. No, um, but I don't want to. Or, or
1: tweeting Sheriff Clark's book recommendation while he's in the middle. Yeah,
0: yeah. No, exactly. And it just it just sort of screams out like I'm not. I'm, I'm, not doing, really, I'm going through the motions. I'm going through the motions. I'm I was this, told I have to do this. Uh, right, exactly.
1: Right. And and this is one of my biggest complaints about the president. Right. Is that it's not just that he does things that he's told to do. Because everyone right. does. It's You're that right. it's that he makes it. He makes sure everyone understands the difference yes, between things yes, he yes. wants to be doing right. and things he's doing out of some external obligation.
0: And that manifests as a problem, in my view, both at the uh, head of state and head of government. Completely level. agree. Yeah. All right. So, but leaving aside that. Um,
1: so I, I think you and I are both of the view that, unlike Katrina, the the response to Harvey so far has not exposed any serious legal failings in the disaster room now i will say I, mean, I think there's a larger conversation to have about funding priorities um, and whether we really should be having conversations about decreasing FEMA's budget to help build, for example, the wall,
0: but right—that's a longer-term conversation. That's not like a in the moment. Yeah, no, I think that the funding element, which we'll talk more maybe in our con law segment, because it used to be, my friends, in the early <laughs> Republic and indeed throughout the 19th century, the idea that the federal government would spend funds for disaster relief was a flashpoint of federalism contention. Are right? you kidding me? That's, that's, that's tyranny. tyranny. Yeah, exactly. It's well, you know, it was how was that in the general welfare? If it's only helping right. the people of Texas. Right. Uh, you still get uh, smidgens of that here and there. Um, Commerce among the states. Uh, another possible uh, topic area that hasn't been an issue here. The you know the role of the military in domestic yes. society, which is something you've written a lot about. Once or twice you yeah. T- yeah, but this is this has not been an
1: issue. No, I mean we haven't had the same like you know finger pointing. Why didn't you federalize the national guard? Why didn't you call it the army? Right. It hasn't and, and, and to
0: here, I, I give a lot of credit to Texas military forces, Point. which have, you know they don't. There's no need for federal intervention there. Um, Interesting, I read today that Singapore, there's some Singaporean helicopters uh, in the area for some kind of training mission. So they're using those. Thank so, my friends in Singapore, thank you. Seriously. Um, So that's one bucket. I do want to say the other bucket has nothing at all to do with anything
1: you and I teach. But there is, I think, a larger conversation about zoning and land use and environmental regulation um, that this story is going to have to force people to confront. Houston is like one of the only cities in the United States with no zoning laws.
0: But do you, so you think that's contributing to the flooding yes. in a substantial way? Yes. Given that it's the most rain that's literally ever fallen. So, I mean, so zoning the, wouldn't have made a difference Zoning
1: wouldn't have prevented there from being flooding, right? But, I mean, ProPublica has a really interesting report, I think from earlier this year, right, in response to the tax day flood, about there's some staggering statistic about the amount of wetlands that have been paved over in and around Houston Mm -hmm. in the last 10 or 15 years. Yeah, I I can believe that. And and there are two problems there. One, wetlands are naturally absorbent, and so they're a place for all this water to go. Two, pavement is the opposite. Right, right? And So so it's not just that you're taking away areas for the water to go. It's that you're you're, you're creating a sort of flood prone development right now you're right i mean this is the the, the amount of rain is not caused by the zoning <laughs> laws right even if there's a climate change this yeah. but right i think some of why this is so bad has at least something to do with just how lax Houston is
0: when it comes to protecting what? you know their ability to absorb this amount of rain. I don't doubt for a second having spent loads of time in Houston and being you know very acquainted with uh, <laughs> just how paved over and, and how you know how uh, kind of haphazard the, the stuff is. Um, I think sure. There could be a marginal impact from that, and it, it no doubt. Da- there's no question. Sort of from an environmental justice perspective, it is. It would not surprise me in the slightest. Indeed, I'd be surprised if it weren't the case that the poorest, most poverty-stricken neighborhoods are the ones that. I mean, listen, there still have been flooding, but right. but
1: you know, I mean, so just in con- right, we were supposed to get hit much worse here in Austin, not yeah, we, we, not, not worse than Houston, but we supposed We really dodged the bullet. We dodged the bullet, but I think we're also better set up for it, right? Because there's a lot,
0: you know, Austin floods but not the way Houston floods. Yeah, you know, we've, we've got a much better natural drainage, perhaps, but we're smaller. And I guess more the, hills. The, que- the question that you're raising is, you know, should something have been done to choke back the growth of this massive city? I mean, what would that look like, telling people they couldn't build? No, it'd have to be uh, harsher rules about offsetting, you yeah. know, development yeah. with, uh, you know, some form of... You say uh, you say harsher, I say more aggressive. Yeah. Either way. Either way. Uh, mo- more potato, impactful. Potato. 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 <laughs> tomato. Tomato.
1: I'll all say this right. I, but so, so I think there, the, the two points here, right, are that there actually aren't like huge legal crises that yeah. Ooh, Harvey has wait, provoked. I've got, but there, there was are almost t- buckets.
0: Yeah, I've got one that almost happened. Um, so the the Houston mayor uh, yeah. has been taking some heat for not the evacuation issued an evacuation order. Um, while the, the, the situation Although our, our colleague, Michelle Dickerson, has written some really interesting op-eds on that subject. Yeah, about, about you can issue the order, but that doesn't mean people have the means to get well, out. And also, where are 4 million people going to go? Right, exactly. No, I mean, it, there's huge problems. And I think I heard Mayor Turner talking about this saying, like, you know, if you put people out there, there's just a whole different set of problems. Like, but like uh, but right what's there. interesting is Governor Abbott, I think, was uh, was communicating or issuing statements while this was happening, basically criticizing the mayor. And, and I'm not suggesting this ended up raising a legal issue because both of them stayed perfectly within their lanes. But there's an issue I don't know the answer to. Maybe somebody like Alan Cohn probably knows this. Or, or um, you know, there's other people who specialize in this area. Um, Levels of authority within yeah. the state system yeah. about requiring mandatory evacuation. There's got to be something in Texas law that would empower the government. Governor so at so some I point think I think that's in. mostly a state law
1: question because all of the federal statutes are pointed at the governor, right? So so all of like the the requests for aid, yeah. right, and all of the triggers for national guard assistance, et cetera, are directed at the state executive on the federal level. So I assume that that's a, a messy question of state constitutional yeah, law. Yeah, it's
0: kind of interesting. If any listeners happen to be experts on this, love to hear <laughs> from you. All right, so speaking of con law. Yeah, let's let's talk about what we did today and what we're going to be doing.
1: Um, so, you know, we are teaching constitutional law to first-year 1Ls. Um, we should say to our listeners who aren't super familiar with how law school curricula work, not that common, right, to have first-semester first-year law students taking constitutional law um, as opposed to taking, like, civil procedure, torts, et cetera. Part of this is just a function of how we roll at UT, right? Where we sort of mix up which classes they get in their, you know, in which semester in the first year. I think though it has some advantages, Bobby. Right?
0: That like we're giving them structure from the very beginning. Well, when I did the orientation for the students, i give this whole spiel about the first-year curriculum where I explained that, yes, it's it's an old model that sort of seems sort of path-dependent. Is it really justified? And I have this theory about how that all these courses, especially including con law, uh, they're all gateways yep. to, to the other domains that, uh, that will fill out their right. upper-level curriculum. Con law is, is a great gateway into the critical question of how do we structure government power? Right. I mean, what's more important than that?
1: And how do we structure the legal system where all the other classes you are going to be learning are operating?
0: Right, you know, like why, So the rules are X in right. Civ Pro. Congress has done this, or they're they're that. Yep. You know, how did they get the authority to say so? Crazy, um, right? And and one of the things that we do that I think is
1: really cool is right. We like many of our of our peer institutions, although not all of them, right, have small sections. So you and I both have twenty five students. Yeah, which is awesome. It's so good. It's really terrific. Um, and we both talk common law a bunch of times, but
0: but there's something that's a little different this time around. So, I suspect your courts will feel more different than mine will this year. Because I used to teach this hippy dippy tree
1: hugging liberal crypto fascist com law course. Oh, is that what it's going to be? <laughs> <laughs> That's, can I get that on a bumper sticker for Seriously. you? Seriously. <laughs> um, so, well, I wish. Well, hear- one of my students, by the way, asked me today if you could record class. And I said, sure, just you know, don't send it to you know anyone else because I was like, oh you know what?
0: Never mind. Everyone knows what I think already. Though, but. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, you're not, you know, you're on Twitter. You're yeah. Not I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm not hiding. Uh, and yeah, none of us should be. That didn't mean we should, you know, drill it into people's heads. I but agree. Uh, so I'll be interested to hear how you're gonna do things differently. I'll just say, I'm not planning to be too it's not gonna look too different. I mean, we will talk, of course, about things in the news <laughs> that the administration may do that raise constitutional Wait, issues. The current administration is doing stuff that raises novel constitutional issues? But that, that it does, I do seem to recall that so did the Obama administration, and in fact, so do they. So do they all. Now, so, this one's going to be done with a ham-handedness and crassness. I think that is going to exacerbate uh, many an issue, and it's possible we'll get things that are uniquely constitutional challenges that you just couldn't imagine another uh, president doing. But I, I'm not sure that in a common law perspective we're going to see, so it, the stakes seem higher because the politics have sharpened and the, and the passions are higher. I'm not sure that the subject matter moves are going to be a significant- So I disagree
1: thing. in one very important respect. And, and maybe this is actually a big a big disagreement between us. Um, I don't think that the cost, and I know that there are folks who disagree with me, I don't think that the constitutional challenges that we would have taught as headline news 10 years ago in the height of the Bush administration or five years ago in the height of the Obama administration represented such a threat to the rule of law. And and my concern about some of the controversies we're looking at right now is not their substance. You know, Can the president violate the, you know, the what is the amendments Clause that's applied to the president? Right? right? <laughs> um, can the president pardon so-and-so? Right? Yeah. Uh, the substance, we're always gonna fight about the substance of constitutional law. That's why this class exists. My concern is the attacks on judges, right? Oh, yeah. My concern is the complete indifference to norms that have existed to protect constitutional independence of institutions, right? And so, you know, I'm not saying that the sky has fallen, but I do think that this is different in both degree and kind from some of the constitutional challenges. And that's how I'm sh- shaping my class. Not that Trump is a unique threat to the rule of law, but that we are living in an age. In which we have to not just understand what the constitutional fights are about, but what are the structures in which those fights are supposed to take place.
0: So I, I agree with some of what you just said. I want to <laughs> highlight two things that I very much agree with. Um, in in my my document I give to the students to kind of preview how I think about the course. I, I talk about something that our colleague Sandy Levinson would refer to as the Constitution of Settlement versus I think what's the other phrase? Uh, the constitution of Conversation. Conversation, right? So I prefer to just say there's look there's clear cut stuff. Right. Say how many how many senators does two? Uh, yeah, exactly. And there's no there's no there's no need for method theory right. or anything present, else. President
1: has to be 35, not 35 in life expectancy adjusted right. terms. Well, just 35. Ah, but what about what about leap year?
0: Right? And there's a little room there. Um, so no, th- on March 1st it becomes 35. <laughs> You're right. So there is yeah, because there is there's a solar year. That would so be that would be counts. a hilarious
1: exam hypothetical. President you know President Doe is born on February 29th you
0: know 1996. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So um, th- there's the clear cut part of the Constitution, and common law casebooks and common law courses rarely, traditionally, don't pay any attention to them. Uh, and that's and that's why I'm paying more attention to it. Right. This and way. so and so that's why I'm getting at. So Sandy would say, you know, that's the big problem. A lot of the most important stuff is clear cut, and since it's not it's not up for grabs, what it says, we don't spend time in law school wrestling with the should, the normative questions about that, and considering whether, you know. Should we change that rule? Should we have it? Should we upset the grand bargain? Et cetera. I think that this administration, um, the pardon power examples, you know, perhaps highlighting this. Things that are fairly clear cut. Nonetheless, suddenly seem like they really got to enter the conversation more Agreed. because because you're seeing the stakes a little bit elevated. And then a second thing you said, you mentioned the unwritten norms. Norm being the key word. These are not parts of constitutional law, but they're cultures about what's proper, what's within the bounds of polite society. If you I, will. I don't know, I, I, well, I let, let me let me finish. I'm sorry. So, these things which have this status that undergird and have tremendous constitutional relevance just as they have tremendous administrative law relevance and tremendous relevance for all these bodies of law but certainly the constitution too uh, often are not talked about or highlighted in law school in part because you just assume that certain things will happen or won't happen and now we're seeing and as you said it's it's not just you know Trump maybe is the symptom of the larger phenomenon of these things coming under pressure because the country's changing or has been changing for a while and we've got this catalytic moment. Right. I mean, think about like the confirmation process. Right. So,
1: you know, this is not about Trump. Right. Does does the Senate have an obligation to confirm at least someone in some period of time to a Supreme Court seat? Right. Of course, the answer is no. But. That you know, if you take that to its limit, can the Senate destroy the Supreme Court, right? right. And and I'm of the, the answer to that also has to be no. Maybe the remedy is not a legal one, but that has to be part of the conversation in ways that two years ago it wouldn't have been. And so, right. So so I think it's really important. It's not just Trump, but it is largely Trump.
0: Yeah, well, I, so I think that you could you can well imagine there would be many who would say, I don't know, when President Obama decided he was going to not enforce certain laws in certain ways on related to immigration, we're just going to choose as an exercise of discretion to focus our resources here, not there. The same sort of, okay, but wait, where does that slippery slope go? How far can you go? Now, that wouldn't have resonated with you in the slightest, but it resonated with lots of people yeah. who thought there were a ton of people who felt like, yeah, there's something going on here that's, That's not consistent with the rule of law now I but there was a lawsuit right but there was a lawsuit and the president
1: lost and he didn't he didn't You know go after the judge and say oh well the judge is a Mexican born whatever so therefore I don't respect his decision I mean like you know the president respected the
0: way that we resolve constitutional disagreements in this country if the question is Do I think that we're at a time in having a, a potent political figure? who is directly challenging rule of law and norms. Of course, I think that is clearly happening here. I think when you see people talking about defunding the special counsel and trying desperately to delegitimize such an honorable public servant as Bob Mueller and in, in saying these, these terrible things about the judge in that particular case, um, there's all sorts of reasons to say, yeah, in, in the pardon of Joe Arpaio for the particular thing for which he was convicted <laughs> right. and the consequent attempt to try to take this conservative Republican judge and depict him as some in, – and in, in his career. Justice Department prosecutors right. as no an Obama wish hunt. Taking all these all these honorable public servants and trying to depict them as something that they aren't. Um, all these things are terribly important. So all that said, I'm not sure that's gonna greatly impact the day to day, you know, progress. In my Com Law course, you know, we start Right. In, the, in the colonial period. Of course. And we roll forward, end up covering all the biggies. Not that many of them, I think, will be especially impacted. So my the- so my syllabus, right?
1: I mean, so, so let me say, so so how has this actually reflected itself in my class this semester? The short version is I'm teaching probably 95% of the same material that I taught last year. But I changed books. All right? The, the big move I made was to change which book I used. So I had, until this year, been using um, a book known in shorthand as, as sort of breast and Levinson in mm-hmm. common law circles. It's Process of Constitutional Decision Making. I think um, it is Sandy's book. Sandy's book. Um, Sandy's book or, you know, yeah. Sandy, Jack, Akil, and Riva's book. But I only office down the hall from Sandy, so <laughs> it's got to be him. Yeah. You know, Jack Balkin was was once here, right? That's true. Um, We we love Jack. um, You know, Riva Nikhil, I I went to law school, you know. If if
0: they come here and we go get barbecue and and Mexican food all the time with them, it'll become their book.
1: So I love that book. That book is a super historical, right, overview of the Constitution. That's why I love it. And it spends a ton of time on sort of the modern evolution of individual rights doctrine. There's a ton of equal protection and due process case law in there, like all of the sort of, you know... Turn twists and turns in sex discrimination jurisprudence, in fundamental rights jurisprudence. It's great. Where I think that book is weak is on two things, right? What Sandy calls the Constitution of Settlement, right? Sort of focusing on the work that is still being done today by constitutional choices that were made 220 years ago we haven't revisited. Um, and I think it's weak on structure. I mean, I think the separation of powers discussion in that book is really not that, that powerful. And I think this is a time when the separation of powers matters more than ever. I I, I believe that. So I chose a book that I I was looking for two things in a book. I was looking for a book that was much more structurally oriented, and I was looking for a book that that felt much less comfortable to me. It was a great occasion to stretch.
0: Now talk about the book you chose.
1: So I chose a book that is called, shockingly, The Constitution of the United States. And it's a bit Wait, of a, isn't that is <laughs> It's a bit of an insurgency project. Um, so it's Mike Paulson, um former judge Mike McConnell, uh, Steve Calabresi, uh Will Bode, and Sam Bray. And, you know, I think it's safe to say it is a book by five guys who um I think would generally be identified. Would you agree with this as, you know, um certainly right of center
0: in the law professor universe and perhaps even, Significantly, right well, of center. We in the law professor universe, definitely uh, in the general American, you know, public universe. Not sure, but yeah. these—I these mean—they're not the same. I mean, like, these are like, conservative and I mean, or Mike libertarian. Paulson, right. I mean, Mike has been one of the most
1: aggressive advocates of a departmentalist view of executive power. Yeah. Right. I mean, these are people who, you know, I, I adore Sam and Will and I respect, you know, the other authors a, a lot. These are people who I don't usually agree
0: with. No, there's no question. I think my comfort level with, you know, their views is is much more than yours. Uh, these are we both agree like really titanic minds yeah. and it's a cool project I commend to any teacher and I love what you're doing anybody who's identified that their view is actually sort of a, a different perspective than a casebook author's um, great what a great way to create a little uh, productive friction in well your so teaching.
1: productive fri- I mean listen f- it's why we have this podcast right And, and <laughs> productive- yeah, as I pat myself on the back for our little project here <laughs> Pro-
0: productive friction that should be this episode title um, <laughs> leave it to the listeners to judge how productive this is
1: yeah uh, you know it, it's productive to me I mean, I, I'm yeah, learning me for this too. conversation so, so so, the two big things animating my choice were, one, it's much more structurally oriented, where the book is going to give the students a lot more of a sense of the structural mechanism, not just separation of powers, but just the, the structural features of the Constitution. And two, it's not just that I suspect I'm going to disagree with the authors on some stuff, but I suspect we're actually going to agree on so many of the things that are actually in dispute today. Yeah, yeah. And I hope that that's, you know, if I agree with the authors of, the, of Sandy's book, you know, that didn't surprise you. That doesn't surprise anybody, right? right? But if like if our students are seeing that someone who they are gonna quickly figure out is, you know, a bit left of center, right? Um, is actually you know endorsing the same understandings of structural features of the Constitution.
0: This is sort of like Ben Wittes' uh, uh, Coalition of All Democratic Forces. Exactly. So it's and, a and Coalition
1: it's, of All Democratic common law professors.
0: And frankly, it's a lot like our theory of of this uh, topic you and I, you know, have different political views, but are within a certain boundary. Uh, but we often agree on the stuff that's really important. Right. And
1: so, and so, my hope is that at the very least, it'll help the students see um, how much common cause there is on the important stuff and where it matters. If we get there, who knows what's going to happen between now and December, where the administration is really at odds with everybody and oh, not right. just the obvious, you know, n- not just the obvious bedfellows. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So, well, I, I don't. In, it's I, just a ton of work. It it's to switch books after twelve years.
0: <laughs> That's one reason why I don't do it. I I like the historical progression. Yeah. I really don't like to go issue by issue. I know. I'm, I like I'm gonna to... miss.
1: I'm gonna miss the history. Yeah. I, I'm definitely gonna miss that. But you know, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. All um, right. Well, good luck.
0: So you know, to our to, to my 25 students, if you're listening to this, stop. Go do your get reading, back to work. Get yeah. back to work. I had a student ask me like, should I listen to y'all's podcast? I was like, you know, to help your help yourself go to sleep. Sure. <laughs> Stuck in traffic. It's, okay. It's somnambulant. <laughs> it, it certainly is that <laughs> productive somnambulant.
1: All right. So. So uh, let's quickly run through some some news and sort of you know the quiet National Security Week. So pardon. So we talked about Joe Arpaio's pardon. Yep. Um, I don't think there's any question that the president had the power to pardon Joe Arpaio. Now, no question. This is so very some, well settled. So some folks were saying that you know criminal contempt. May not be quote an offense against laws of the United States, right? Because it's within the inherent inherent power of the courts. I
0: think there's precedent on that point. Ex
1: parte Grossman, Grossman. 1925, yep. yeah. Chief Justice Taft. And oh, by the way, if you're super nerds, if you if, if you have your super nerd scorecard at home, the last time the Supreme Court issued an original writ of habeas corpus. No kidding. Oh, that's very cool. Um, So, you know, I don't think it's settled that the president can pardon even contempt offenses against courts, even though that's such an obvious affront to the courts. Right. Right. It's like this guy who was an executive branch official at the state level basically thumbed his nose at the courts, was punished for thumbing his nose at the courts, and I'm pardoning him for thumbing his nose at the courts. Yep.
0: That's just the way the cookie crumbles. That is. I mean, let's be really clear that the nature of the pardon power is a check in the hands of the current president The president has this power to, in effect, nullify the effect of decisions by prior congresses and presidents to make something criminal in in, in a particular case.
1: Now, I just want, but ex parte Grossman is, I think, instructive because Chief Justice Taft spends some time in that opinion talking specifically about how, how people would react and say, well, but wait a second, like, you yeah. know how this might be
0: pushed. This to its is it,
1: right. A president could abuse this for such mischief and malice, and so we have to have
0: an offsetting mechanism and for so, that. And
1: so the so Taft says overtly. That in a pre that a president who abuses the pardon power can be impeached. Absolutely. And, and to me, that's and, just And like, abuse not legally, right? In a, right abuse yeah. in a way that is legally permissible but but but
0: No, but but unwise. Un- unwise, undis- unsound. And and that to me is just bedrock separation of powers. There's this divvying up of tools to counterbalance one another. Yeah. He
1: says, quote, exceptional cases like this would suggest a resort to impeachment rather than to a narrow and strained construction of the pardon power.
0: Exactly. And I
1: th- I think that's exactly right. That's completely I, right. The problem is that what the founders did not envision when they wrote the structures of the Constitution was a feckless Congress, and so you know, yes, pardoning Joe Arpaio is going to set off people on the left as it should. It's a
0: disgusting pardon. It's not gonna. This is not gonna move the needle in Congress. There's something else uh, related to that. It's not just that they didn't anticipate a Congress that's uh, that's separated by parties, not not branches. I like how you just turn. I, I like the euphemism you just used for my feckless. <laughs> well, the, here's the other thing. The, the founding generation had a belief. Limited as it may have been, at some baseline amount of civic virtue that people would have. They also believed that they had engineered some of that into the institutions through the Electoral College. That's right. right. Well, and we saw what's become of that. Right. The Electoral College... Truly vestigial
1: <laughs> at this point. If it really, if you really can't, this would have been the right. This would have been the time for the electoral college to serve its purpose.
0: Right. If it really was the supposed Hamilton to, electors. If it was a cooling function. Right. Uh, certainly, you would see at least not that they had to actually pull the trigger this time, as much as some of us may have liked that. It's that they it should have been clearly perceived as legitimate for them to consider doing it. But what I took away from that process was, by and large, people wouldn't consider that totally. legitimate, and that states have gone to great lengths uh, to try to make sure legally that the members. Of the college can't actually depart from right uh, faithless elector laws. Yeah, exactly. So, so, Which to me, actually, I think is arguably unconstitutional. Probably.
1: Um, we'll have to get Sandy on to talk to us about it. Yeah, I've never thought about it until I said it just now. No, but no it's better. There
0: are people who think that they are. Well, and in my, my opinion, right at this moment, is they must be because the the, the, it's the it's point a, of the electoral well, college was to act as this last safeguard yeah, but in it, case. But the but it does the
1: Constitution does give states some control over how they choose electors, right? And so whether you can bind them to vote on the first ballot, I think that goes
0: to your point earlier about there's a certain reduction where if you take the principle too far, you. have destroyed I an institution agree. that has a core function. This is why I think that there is such a thing as a constitutional norm that is not reflected in text. I, see, I think, I'm not sure we'd disagree on that, I'm, but I would say like, well, it's not a norm, it's part of the Constitution. We're, we're interpreting something in the Constitution. Okay, and but it, okay, it it's,
1: it's, it's an a-textual principle, right, that, that you have to find somewhere in the Constitution. I, I'd find it in the text. Okay, well, there you go. Um, so, you know, I, I, the real question I think is, if as a number of, of Twitter, audio are suggesting this is a sign of things to come. Right, that the pardon of Arpaio, that, yeah, it's that, a te- it, it, the it's possibility is a test drive. Right, yeah. then the question. Listen, I mean, I think there's no question if the president starts pardoning everybody around him, right, <laughs> but, um, and if that does not provoke Congress to really start asserting itself against the president. Then I think we're gonna have a big problem.
0: So I th- I think I know you have zero faith in a supine Congress. Zero. Uh, less
1: th- can I have less than zero? Yeah, yeah. You can, can. I I- can I
0: have I faith? Square less root of negative zero. one faith? Uh, a, a movie I've not seen in a long time. I less than zero. Oh, less than zero. Yeah. I was like, uh, I is not a movie. I is an imaginary number. Oh, here's here's a trivia item for you, just to wake up our listeners in case they're driving off the road. Uh, so Robert Downey Jr. said uh, less than zero. I was in a movie once. And Robert Downey Jr. was in it. You were in a movie? Uh, you can't see. You can see who I am if you know who's wearing the football helmet, but my high school football team provided the football playing extras in, wait for it, Johnny Be Good, <laughs> which may be the worst movie that Uma Thurman, Robert Downey Jr., and Anthony Michael Hall ever made. <laughs> I, I'm speechless. <laughs> yeah, you should be. <laughs> um, all right, so all right, back to the pardon. So, so, Spe- speaking of
1: things that need to be pardoned. Right. Well, that, that movie, that movie should that does not well, awful. Okay. awful. So, so listen, I mean, I I don't think we need to go to to beat to beat the to beat a dead horse here. I think we you know we're saying the same thing. The, the other point that I think is worth saying is on a more legal front, um, there's also settled Supreme Court doctrine that a pardon wipes out. The privilege against self-incrimination. Right. That
0: to me is the big consequence. And one reason for why, federal crimes. Right. So first of all, the, he can't pardon state crimes. And right. there have been many people pointing out today saying, look, if there were right. if, if there were and other things going on, state prosecution. And this is why involved. like the New York attorney general has been such, I think, a prominent feature of this story. Absolutely. So there is that sort of fallback. That'll get that'd be pretty messy. It's very suboptimal. Um, if uh, if you do have a wave of pardons where he tries to put a blanket of immunity on everyone. First of all, I think Congress would wake up at that point. I think I think that I don't think our body politics prepared to swallow that. I hope not. Um and secondly, it really opens everyone else up to testimony. What's well, the
1: thing? So right, so, so the Supreme Court said as as early as 1895 and multiple times since. Um, that you cannot invoke the right, the privilege against self-incrimination, to defend
0: against testifying about an offense for which you've already been pardoned. Here's a question: Imagine it goes down that way. He he starts dishing out the pardons to everybody, and um, the the investigation's still continuing. So the investigators start pulling those people in yeah. to testify in front of grand juries. Sure. Congress starts pulling people to testify in Congress, and these people who've just been pardoned say like, "Well, I'm still not going to testify." And they say, "Well, you can't. You can't invoke the Fifth Amendment." And they say, "Well, screw you. I'm going to do it anyways." And then there's contempt proceedings, and then they get pardoned for the contempt, and then contempt. they get pardoned again, and they get serial pardons. This is that same principle we keep coming back to in this episode. Isn't there a reduction, a reductive element to this argument where you can't go? So I think each of those, I think each of those pardons would be constitutional, and I think they would be absolutely impeachable. I see. So so it's okay to keep doing this, but it just gets more and more obvious that the case has to be made politically. Correct. because Right, because you can't pardon that.
1: You, the pardon can't prevent them from being compelled to testify. It can just prevent them from suffering
0: consequences for yes. refusing. So you end up with this serial arrest, serial indictments, and serial pardons. And and, just, and, and all eyes turn to Congress and say, are you going to do something exactly. about this? Exactly. And then we have a constitutional crisis. Yeah, no question so, about that. So yay, <laughs> something to look something? forward to. See the next season of this show. Um,
1: so as opposed to a con- ha- let's let, let's pivot from a constitutional crisis to a um, existential crisis, which is North Korea firing nuclear or potentially nuclear capable missiles, yeah. right, on trajectories that suggest that they can hit Japan, Guam, and maybe parts of the West Coast. Well, they can
0: certainly hit Japan. That's, that, that much is
1: uh, that much is clear. The, uh, that, right. This, this last test, I think, they flew over Japan, right over it, uh, over Hokkaido, I think. By the way, Hokkaido. This is a random tangent, but just because you know it might that's not be there doing. much longer. Um, <laughs> oh, geez. Oh, geez. um So Sapporo is actually one of my favorite cities in the world. Um, Sapporo is okay. this. It's 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 like Sapporo is like the the Portland or Seattle of Japan. It's like the northern. Oh, you know, that's cool. What funkier, like more like you know natural you i mean not natural well, you like, taught over there for a while didn't you i spent a summer teaching in kyoto and i did kyoto is wonderful kyoto is amazing but so i tried to travel as much as i could around japan while i was there and like my last week there i did a weekend in sapporo and i went to a game in the sapporo dome oh, which yeah. by the way looks like a space station Um, of course course where the where the where the nippon ham fighters play great best name in in japanese baseball seriously um i'd say it was up there um went to the Sapporo factory Sapporo, excellent beer Yeah, it is good beer um it's it's a it's a really interesting little city um and so if if folks are you know travel tips from Vladik, right you know you go to japan don't skip hokkaido
0: all right so the next time uh the north koreans launch a missile right over (laughs) japanese territory can uh Can the Japanese shoot down the missile if they assume assume they could do it? Are they legally uh, permitted to do it? I would would think it depends a lot on where the missile is. The good faith. Analysis of where's that missile going? Is it really a threat? Like, like if if they're flying
1: over. So listen, if they're flying over at seventy five thousand feet, right? I mean, so you and I are not experts on the Montreal Convention or on the international law of air travel. No, Um, but I think I I think there is a. If I recall correctly, international
0: law creates a ceiling. There's a there's a ceiling or floor above which you can pass. It's it's, it's international airspace. Absolutely, and we in the United States certainly depends on this all the time. Absolutely, no. So there's there you can you can do certain, but. I here's I I know nothing about this. I'm sure some of our listeners. John do. Snow, or should
1: I say, <laughs> never mind. No I, spoiler. I don't don't say don't <laughs> say it. Um, you know nothing. Your name is not John Snow. We
0: cannot get to that yet. Um, there's there's a question in my mind about the the purpose for which yep. the overfly is taking place yep. and, and the the relative peaceful compatibility. And, and uses. I think in this case, everyone understood that it was a test, not an actual attack. Exactly. Now, if you have something that in good faith it seems to potentially either be uh, likely to crash on your territory yep. or actually be targeting it, yep. then absolutely I think they do have yep. the, the, uh, yep. the ability yep. to, to take it out. The interesting question is, okay, we'll run it backwards. It's the classic anticipatory versus waiting for the event to occur. Can you can you d- make that judgment shortly after launch if that's your last window of opportunity? Well, this also it?
1: really matters under Japanese law because here, here I'm gonna show off the one thing I know about Japanese constitutional law. But it involves defense. It does, right? So Article 9 of the Japanese Constitution which we wrote, have a Hamilton reference, right? James which I wrote, <laughs> which I wrote, um, right? Um, Article Nine limits right Japanese military forces to self-defense. Right. Um, now, there's a whole fight right now being led by Prime Minister Abe about modifying Article Nine and about allowing the Japanese military to at least have some offensive capability. This is the this is the this is the entire case for that fight, right? For the for the for
0: the pro-amendment camp. North Korea's belligerence is exactly why there's a push to modify Article 9. Does does that mean in Japanese national security law debates that on the classic anticipatory versus preemptive line that they're not willing to just interpret uh, their Article 9 self-defense sphere to include some degree of left of boom activity? Um, So I I wouldn't go that far, but just that much more so. So we've talked before on the podcast about how there's at
1: least some fight in the U.S. about whether the constitutional line really is pure defense offense, Mm -hmm. right? In Japan, there's no question that, at least right now, that's the constitutional line. Oh, now, now, defense may sometimes mean left of boom, right. right? But with all that pressure to sort of focus on defense, probably closer to boom than the U.S. would take on the same. Well, and it
0: would certainly send a powerful signal uh, if they actually change their constitution in this respect. I mean, this
1: kind of saber rattling is only going to, you know,
0: in, uh, I, I, I'm ambivalent on, uh, on 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 that debate. But
1: this kind of saber rattling is not going to sort of it, – is going to tilt the scales in one direction.
0: Uh, Maybe a useful direction. Yeah. yeah. Um, But, of course, if the next missile overflies Guam... Yeah, so then it's a question for us, right? Yeah. Although it didn't have to... You know, there's... From an international law perspective, if if Japan's got a self-defense right, then we can come in and collective self-defense. From our domestic law perspective, if the threats to Japan, there's this classic, goes back to the Korean War, issue of what about the war powers debate? Does the defense power of the United States, which clearly has a a self-defense element for attacks on us, to what extent can you push that out to defense of others? Um, I think that's one of the most intriguing and certainly most capable of spilling into a lot of scenarios. Quite, quite. Uh, Um, So we'll see what happens, but just, you know, We'd be
1: remiss in a national security law podcast and not talking about North Korea continuing to apparently, you know,
0: rattle the rattle the rattle the the saber. Indeed. Well, there's there's been a lot of commentary suggesting that uh, Kim Jong Un or at least the people around him actually have a pretty good idea of what they think they can, how far they can push it, and how far not to push it, and that it may not spill over uh, into something that goes out of control. Let's just, hope that's just, right. Just don't read the president's tweets. Well, how about? Yeah, how about we all just not retweets period hey except 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 except, ours. Though, except you know at
1: Bobby Chesney at Steve Lockett, <laughs> NSL podcast yes all right what else have we got um so last but not least in our little news roundup is this happened a couple of weeks ago but it actually didn't get a lot of attention you know we had talked before on the podcast about the big um, ACLU lawsuit against the two private psychologists who were you know most directly attributed uh, to the the CIA torture program it actually settled out of court right after we, we talked about Judge yeah. Quackenbush's ruling. Denying the motion to dismiss and opening the case to more discovery and right. We
0: thought this was gonna, going to go to trial. We thought yeah. it was going to go to trial, and it might well be the the case that goes further than any other litigation goes further than any other towards producing a judicial ruling on on the boundaries of some of these interrogations. Nope. Yeah. No. That's <laughs> it's
1: all gone now. Um, so so we don't know a lot about the settlement, right? Um, and so I don't want to. We shouldn't speculate too much. No, but no. I, I just want to say I'll say again what I said before, right? Especially now that we haven't had this major court ruling um, solidifying or debunking right the ability to obtain civil remedies in general in a context like this, I feel even more strongly, not that this wasn't an appropriate case to bring, it absolutely was, but that it's going to be really unfortunate if the only example we can point to 10 years from now of civil liability for torture of detainees after 9-11 is this out-of-court settlement against two private contractor psychologists. That's a pretty bad track
0: record for our for our, our accountability regime. If if the nature of the complaint is that some let's assume for the sake of argument, somebody should be held accountable and it's and the problem is it's come to rest on these guys as opposed to people who had full time government employment. Actually I'm not so sure that I think the private public distinction has a lot of bite here because these guys were so central to crafting this particular program. If somebody, if it was wrong and somebody should be held accountable for it, um, they seem very plausible as as, uh, the ones holding the bag. Uh, there, There are obviously those who feel like, well, Never mind public private. It's more about senior policymaker versus sort lower level implementer. I think that has a little more bite to it if you think somebody should be held accountable, and, and I do. So I do. as I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway, so so the story actually ends not with a bang but with a whimper. Indeed. Although or it might with settlement. well and, well
1: a bang. I mean, actually, I, so I, I have suspicions about the settlement being fairly substantial and coming
0: out of their pockets. But yeah, I would imagine this. No, look, they they had just gotten a big ruling. They had leverage. It stands to reason the plaintiffs. as a matter of negotiation. Yes. The plaintiffs. Yes. Probably you know did pretty well here, and it's a reminder that uh, for all that uh, there's a temptation to look at litigation as if you know it's just a, it's it's policymaking and politicking by other means. At the end of the day, the system's designed to be about you know justice for particular individuals, and what's in their interest may have nothing to do what's in the larger interest of uh, whatever cause might be totally. linked up with them. Totally. You know, so
1: you know, it's, I mean, we're going to have we're going to talk more about the the conference that you and I are putting on in a couple of weeks about the role of courts in national security litigation. Yeah. Um, I'll be interested sure to see what the what the attendees and panelists have to say about what what lessons we should take away from a settlement in a case like this.
0: Yeah, exactly. So I think that's uh, we've definitely got a lot of grist for the mill for that event. Quite.
1: Um, all right. So you know I think we're gonna we're gonna cut off the 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 serious talk there right. for those who are only here for the serious talk. Or if, a- or if you haven't yet watched the 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 thing called the season finale of Game of
0: Thrones season seven, then nice talking to you. Thanks for listening. Come back next week. Um, all right. So. Game of Thrones time. Game of Thrones time. All right. uh, At long last, or should I say, just after we started, this little mini season is over. And, you know, I'm kind of glad because it was... It was pretty frustrating i'm not gonna say anything i haven't said before this was so outcome driven characters doing stuff that doesn't make a lot of sense in a way that wasn't typical of how the show was run previously so so um hbo has this little featurette right that they do at the end of the show um
1: where it's like inside the episode where where weiss and benioff talk about you know their reflections on the episode I don't remember which one of them said it, but one of them said, you know, in the little thing after the episode, we always knew that the penultimate season was going to end with the wall coming down. And it's like, that admission to me, like, destroys half of the season. Because what it tells me is that the season was a contrivance, right? That the the season was basically designed to create the difficult-to-defend, hard-to-understand events that would allow them to get to a point where the Night King is riding, you know, White Vesarian and you know, using him to tear down the wall. Uh,
0: like it was so clear as soon as this the idea was aired, let alone when they actually executed it. The zombie rendition program, uh, the the ZRP. The ZRP was totally contrived no no one actually none of these characters as they'd been written up to that point would, would, would have, have thought, thought to do a, it no and, and you know and it was so funny or, or and painful. even on the show they
1: knew it like they're like you know why are you the one who has to go yeah, why, exactly. are we do, like,
0: why are we doing this because we have to it just the, the whole plot thing, is making us it, it, the, the, the coming together of like all these beloved characters. It's so convenient. And it just felt like like one of these old like Happy Days episodes were like, hey, it's got the people from Laverne and Shirley and from Happy Days. And we're getting right. everybody together did, in a crossover. Did, did anything on Sunday surprise you? Um, yeah. So I didn't see the little finger thing. Kevin. Oh, I totally did. So Heather did. My wife was like, "Oh, this is all there. It's a sisterly setup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a sister act." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh no! So and so, I was like, "No, no way! Oh, Nobody so, gets the drop on Littlefinger."
1: So when the prior conversation, when 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 Sansa has her last like intimate conversation with Littlefinger, mm-hmm. right? I was like, um, "Yeah, Sansa." Right. Littlefinger thinks that he's winning right now, and Sansa's like, "Uh huh. Keep yeah. keep talking,
0: buddy." Well, I'm very glad, right? Cuz yeah. I was
1: I was thinking it was going the Couldn't other have way. could to a nicer guy.
0: No, exactly. I I will I'm sorry to see his character go. Although I thought that was a great ending for his his yeah. line. Um, I was frustrated the way they seemed to suddenly be writing down to both Arya and Sansa, and, yeah. and reducing them as strong characters, That's right. and it's nice to see, like, oh no, a you know the and and you know dropping Bran in there is their doped dope, up, so, right? right doped right, dope up, right, bro. Right, who's just I like not out it. the intel. You weren't
1: there, and Brad's like, I saw
0: you. Let me play back the tape.
1: Can, can Bran, by the way, now be a character witness at all trials in Westeros?
0: Well, I think it's it is it is pretty great, and of course, one of the problems they have the same problem here that that you haven't in shows that involve like like Flash or Superman, yeah. where it's like the particular powers you've decided to imbue that guy with, anybody who really could do these things could solve a lot of their problems so much more effectively. Right. And you have to just just contrive in, in a like, contriving like, kind like of going, way.
1: Like going to see if Lyanna really did get married to Rhaegar. Yeah,
0: like, huh, let me go check on that. Wait. Yep. Oh, my God, Sam, you're right. Damn. Yeah. damn. What, what the high stuff Rose wrote this okay, now is dying. It has totally to be true. said, I, I, I can't believe, since they so conspicuously had Gilly be the one who found this out and Sam not notice, right. to have him just kind of bust out and be like, yeah, I totally know that. So, so I wish Without he had, even commenting, like I having wish, a moment right. of like, wait, oh my God, that's what she meant. Right? I, I wish he had credited that to
1: Gilly. That would have been so much better if he had said, Gilly was telling me as opposed to I read in the High
0: Septon's diary or at least at least have not I mean there's two levels to this right there's there's the weirdness of just like kind of like dismissing her but there's also just the implausibility of him acting like he knew this when it was that titanic and he clearly didn't Pay attention when it was said before. Right, all, right,
1: all of a sudden he's like, oh, Brand,
0: hey, I actually know some stuff. Yeah, no, it, it felt like a discontinuity as if I they agree. forgot. And you almost wonder, like, did they film a scene or write a scene? But, that-
1: here's, so, but here's the other thing, right? The other thing is, so Brand says, right, Robert's Rebellion was built on a lie, right? That's now clear, right? The lie being that yeah. Rhaegar kidnapped and raped Lyanna. It's worse than that. Um, we know from the whole denouement of Littlefinger right, that the War of the Five Kings was based on a yeah. lie. Well, no, and that we knew, right? We knew Littlefinger engineered it to create, no, I, create I just, chaos. But, but my point is just that, like, what, what you know, the real things we've—so other than that the plot drives everything, Yeah, the, the actual lesson we take away from Season 7 is that all of Westeros' modern history is built upon
0: lies told to protect, you know— right. Honor. Now, is this is this actually an intentional comment either by George Martin originally or the sh- showrunners now about look <laughs> all the style these forces of history these dramatic. Well, events. how about John's whole speech in the Dragon Pit to Danny about the importance of telling the truth? Well, that's that's him now. Like a lot of series, or should I say, Aegon? You, you know. Um, in TV series that go on for a while, the characters tend to become caricatures of themselves. I mean, Friends was a great example. Yep. The characters on Friends became more and more totally. cartoonish versions of themselves. Shenandoah Bong. Yeah, and so, in Ross uh, being particularly an example of this, I'm afraid Jon Snow's becoming a caricature of himself. You mean Igon Targaryen. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's a <laughs> mouthful. Okay, which brings us to the super hilarious, you know, they do the big reveal or confirmation on that. Yeah. And they go right into the sex scene. What's up with Tyrion creeping out in the hallway? So, well,
1: so Tyrion, so I read this on the internet somewhere, like right in the books, right? Like Tyrion has like this whole like fall, you know. Tyrion gets very Tyrion and Danny. Well, so in the book it's not Tyrion. In the book it's it's somebody else. But no, in the book it's John and somebody else. But Anyway, they have a big falling out,
0: right? Uh, Tyrion has a big falling out because he's like jealous and, and annoyed and upset. and It's just, it didn't, they haven't, the show's not been written that correct. way. And it's certainly not been written for him to be, like, yet and, another and, and, man and, and, around right. Danny who's in love with her. And season seven just doesn't have that kind of nuance. Like, like
1: earlier seasons could have pulled it off, right? Like, yeah. you know, this the, the talk Tyrion and Danny have in the season six finale, yeah, yeah. when they're talking, when, after she ditches Dario Naharis, right? <laughs> like, fine,
0: that was the kind of dialogue that could have led to a season like that.
1: Season seven had none of that.
0: Yeah, I know. And it, it felt a lot like he was just sort of there because, well, they, for whatever reason, wanted to remind you that like, there's something titanic about the two of them hooking up. There's, there's the creep factor, but then there's also just the. Uh, anti Danny. Yeah. And so I don't know what that was supposed all right, to say. So me. meanwhile, and then the wall comes down. Yeah. Okay. So that was. Um, it had to happen. And notwithstanding that it drove you crazy that it was. That they all said it has to in that way, I, I'm quite sure it, actually it's always been storyboarded from, you know, all along. I know. You, they got to get past the wall, the, the, the plot. And they got to get a dragon somehow. Well, you got to get past it somehow. And the dragons. It, on paper, the dragon's a great way to do it. It's just if they had had a more plausible way for the dragon to get up there for him to do it. Maybe, maybe, maybe a, a Danny White Walker alliance. There you go. I don't know about that. Uh, maybe That's
1: a, less plausible than the Fakakta <laughs> <Cocta laughs>
0: plot that got us to where we the, are? The zombie rendition program, was the ZRP, was a completely baloney thing. Bad, but so they're, they're through now. Down. Um, lots of interesting comments. Uh, have you seen this thing online where people say? And I, and I noticed when they showed the aerial view of the, the the undead walking through, it was definitely it looked like something. I couldn't tell what they were trying to do. And now there's screenshots circulating saying, "Damn, it's the dire wolf. it's the sigil of the of the Starks." Oh, you haven't seen this? You gotta look no. it up. No. So what I don't know is like, are these real screenshots or did somebody doctor it? But when they pull back and in right, the above, last shot, right, and it, they're they're clearly huh. walking into some kind of funky pattern. I wasn't paying it that's really enough attention. So they're saying like they came through, and the screenshot shows a clear outline. Man, that, of a dire that,
1: that's going to really sort of arm those uh, brands, dark as the night King
0: that's theories. That's what's happening, right? So everybody's like, "Aha, <laughs> brand!" You know, this is like dark brand. It's like a dark phoenix story. Um, if if that's where it's going, uh, I can imagine it because they do need that. This is just like uh, any other good story. Battlestar Galactica had this problem. How do you wrap it up in a satisfying way? Like, where does this come to an end? Well, taking brands. Very convoluted, you know, wizardly plotline tying him into the to the the Night King. Yeah, okay. Now I had a different theory about who the Night King was though, and I put it on Twitter last night. I'm disappointed this didn't you know take the internet by storm. Um, it Hasn't it gone viral. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you saw this, but I I, I circulated the uh, the video of Olaf in Frozen singing Summer because th- this is clear what the Night King's up to. He's seeking. He wants to know what Frozen's things. Frozen things do when they get warm. He just wants to go to the Summer Isles. The Night King is Olaf. <laughs> Where he, it's not Bran, it's Olaf. Uh, you've left
1: me speechless again yeah. for the second time in this what podcast. What about you? Okay, what's
0: your theory? That's my theory. <sighs> There's
1: more to Bran than meets the eye. I think that's quite clear. Um, or the and, third eye. Well, that meets all three <laughs> eyes. And, and it seems to me that Bran is not... Bran is not only a force for good in the Game of Thrones universe. I just don't know yet. I'm not all the way there to he is behind the scenes manipulating all of this to the end. Like, I don't quite buy that yet, but something weird's going on. But here's the thing though. If you and I had sat down on Saturday and written out all the things we thought would happen in this episode, we might have disagreed about Littlefinger biting it, but I think we would have gotten every other high point, right down to the Cersei betrayal, right down to the yeah. Cersei-Jamie split, oh, right, right down so to the... Right, talk about that. Right, right down to the, you know, sort of um, Danny and John hooking up, right down to the wall coming down. We would have predicted all of those yeah. things.
0: Well, and, and to a certain extent, it's about the decline of the surprise emphasis. Right, in, this is not the show of... This is not the Red Wedding. No, right, and, and, and it's possible that the whole... Game of Thrones the sorry the S- song of fire and ice book series would have gone this sort of increasingly predictable increasingly come to satisfying it. yeah but but certainly most of what he'd written so far doesn't seem to point that direction no. and and stuff that's different in the book series compared to what's going on in these episodes we've seen, uh, suggests that he's still sort of spinning out surprises. And yep. Now, I, it, it also has all the hallmarks of sort of a Robert Jordan, I don't know how to end this, so I'm just going to keep adding new threads. And so as much as we're criticizing the, the writers right. for the TV it's show. Moving, it's moving, they, they clearly have a plan. They, they at least have a plan. They're going to deliver a resolution. And they have to because they can't keep all these actors under contract that much longer, yeah. right? Yeah. So uh, while we were sitting here, we got a live from Twitter. We got we got a tweet at us from Luke who says, check this out. Um, it's from Medium.com. Which Game of Thrones character would most likely be prosecuted for war crimes? I like that prompt. What do you think?
1: Well, Ramsay, but he's dead.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's assume – if you could get your hands on them all, who's who are the big war criminals? Ramsey, Ramsey's obviously Tywin. A, a, the Geneva Convention problems with him. You no, know, uh,
1: I, 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 let's focus on the, the living characters. Okay,
0: Cersei. Um, uh, did Daenerys commit a war crime executing the Tarleys? Maybe. For refusing to be, for comp- trying to compel them hey, to did, change sides. Did I, she, that's did, pretty clearly. A, did
1: she use weapons that are prohibited by the use, the use <laughs> bello of Bellow yeah, of um, yeah. Westeros International? I, w- I
0: would think not because they don't have any treaties, and custom clearly allows for the dragons. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, she. it's not just that she executed them, but she tried to compel them to change sides. Yeah. You can't do that to your POWs. Um, the Night King, right, his attack on civilian targets. Um, north of the Wall North of the Wall yeah, Although Well Were they civilians Or is North of the Wall Were the Free Folk A militarized society Where everybody's part Of the able-bodied militia Hard Home did not look Like a military I mean Hardhome was There were children Yeah yeah I, were, I, I get know. you that Yeah That's a that's an assault on, I think it. the assault on That hardhome. was an assault On an undefeated city I think that's right
1: Yeah Um so the Night King, you know, if we ever catch him, he's going—he's uh, going to the Hague.
0: The zombie rendition program—they brought that—that—that that, that undead, but apparently, you know, corporate—that. Yep. Uh, well, okay.
1: So this, of course, raises the question of whether uh, the whites have human rights.
0: Uh, yeah, I, I think not. If they're not if they're not <laughs> living, uh, how can you have a right to life if you're not alive? If you're
1: dead. You're dead. This is like <laughs> this is like all the this is like all the, the the fancy sci-fi the concerns in like the fancy sci-fi literature about the rights of 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 of, of, of robots. <laughs>
0: Are we, are we missing some major war criminals I'm here? sure we
1: are, but I think we probably – Sure is. The point yeah. has
0: been made. I think um,
1: so. so. So I guess now we, we need to come up with something else to talk about next week. I think it might be time
0: for our college football Absolutely. preview. Oh, because by next week, UT should be 1-0, and and uh, we will have a lot of college football UT to talk about. UT should be 1-0. We're going to be. But you know, you know
1: what the big game is for me this weekend? Uh, there's some kind of Amherst thing. Michigan. Amherst versus Michigan? No, Michigan versus. Well, yes, yes, yes. Amherst, not Florida versus Michigan. God, Amherst could play like the 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 like intramural champions at Michigan and still get their butts kicked.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah, so I forgot you are a big Michigan. Uh, My guy. parents met there. Oh, yeah, go blue. So, you know, hail to the victors. Yeah, well, that, I think that'll be actually a
1: tough game. Yeah, oh, it'll be a good game. Michigan, yeah. Florida. It's actually, isn't it in Dallas? I, oh, is it a Jerry World? I think thing? it might be a Jerry World then. You thing. should road trip. Yeah, right. Um, uh, oh, Karen and Maddie will love that. Yeah. So, all right. On that note, everybody, listen. If you're if you're anywhere in the affected areas, please stay safe and dry. Please do other things and listen to this podcast. Um, if you're not, look into ways that you might be able to support folks who are. Um, you know, we'll 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 post some stuff online. Yep. Stay tuned. Hopefully next week we'll actually have more to talk about. Or actually, it's kind of nice when we don't. Indeed. All yeah. right. So, uh, talk to you guys soon. Stay safe out there. Adios.